Chapter Fourteen of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Prade. Chapter Fourteen: The Coup d'État. Upon the third of March, the Parliament of Leichardt's Land was formally reopened. The day was cloudless, and the city wore its most gala aspect. Flags waved everywhere, they floated from the gates leading to Government House, from the steamers at anchor in the river, from the shops in King Street, and the roof of the Assembly Chambers. By eleven o'clock a great crowd had collected before the entrance to the legislative buildings, and groaned or cheered as the various ministers, the oppositionists, and officials walked in. Upon each side of the steps the volunteers were drawn up in line, the band played, and one by one carriages drove up and deposited their occupants, mostly ladies in bright apparel, carrying gay parasols. There was a press forward as Lady Georgina Augmering, the governor's wife, descended from her barouche, and was ushered with becoming formality to a seat upon the dais. She was a handsome, dark-haired old lady, with an artificial smile and a gracious address, who always wore fine black lace and heavy silks and brilliant diamond rings, and who had a firm belief in her sacred mission as the feminine regenerator of colonial manners. Shortly after her arrival, the band struck up God Save the Queen, the cannons by the riverside boomed a salute, the cheering redoubled, and Governor Augmering, a short, rubicund individual, who liked his joke, was a bon vivant, and inspired no particular awe, and who upon this occasion was dressed in a tight-buttoned blue uniform and a plumed hat, was met by the President, the officials, and the members, and duly conducted to his throne. There ensued a little buzz, during which the ladies arranged their dresses, and the Governor surveyed the scene below him. The chamber was long and lofty, with a gallery extending along its sides, and was furnished with carved, morocco-covered benches and a massive table. Upon a raised, crimson-carpeted dais, at one end, sat His Excellency in state, flanked by the representatives of the naval and military elements in Leichhardt's land. A few steps below him was Lady Georgina, smiling blandly around, and on a level with her, the Chief Justice and the President of the Council in their robes. Dyson Maddox, in his capacity of Minister of the Upper House, occupied a seat at the head of the peeresses' benches, filled with well-dressed ladies, among whom Miss Longleat and Miss Valancy were notably conspicuous. The premier's daughter was all in white, and wore a bouquet of rare lilies at her bosom. Mrs. Valancy in black, with artistic touches of yellow here and there, and a maréchal Neil rose pinned into the lace at her neck, cast rapid glances in the direction of the bar, where the members of the lower house would presently appear. The message was sent, the speech read, the railway and loan bill commented upon, the policy of the government expounded. Then the flutter recommenced, the governor left the house, the ladies smiled and nodded, and the opening scene of the political drama was over. It was a farcical performance, but it involved important issues for the premier and his party. The four missing members, who represented the government majority, had not arrived. Miss Longleat was pale and appeared agitated. A golden serpent, which she wore coiled round her neck, rose and fell with the undulations of her breath. She resolutely looked away from Dyson, who sat almost opposite her. Lady Georgina Augmering addressed her kindly, and held her hand in token of affectionate welcome. The Premier's daughter was a favourite with the vice-regal party, but Mrs. Valancy's timid bow met with a chill reception. 
Mr. Middleton, the leader of the opposition, a lean, wiry man with a bleared eye and saturnine countenance, came up and shook hands with her. He looked disagreeably triumphant. Longleat appeared dogged and flushed. Mrs. Valancy met his eye and gave him a smile of understanding. "'He will accept,' she whispered breathlessly, when chance threw them for a moment together. "'Oh, how can I thank you?' "'There is no need to thank me,' he returned in a low tone. "'I have done it for you.' An interesting debate was expected. That afternoon Honoria took her place in the ladies' gallery of the assembly chamber. Mrs. Valancy was there also, but the women did not speak to each other. Honoria was haughty and white from repressed excitement. Mrs. Valancy looked nervous and elated. Certain formal routine business was gone through, and an address of congratulation upon a recent felicitous royal event was moved by a member of the government, and after some sparring which sufficiently betrayed the belligerent tendencies of the opposition, finally carried. The answering address to the governor's speech was brought forward by a bearded squatter, whose powers of oratory had been hitherto exercised in haranguing his shearers, and who, wandering in a circle round the central point of his discourse, videcellit, that the late tin discoveries had been highly conducive to the prosperity of the colony, and that the time for railway extension had now arrived, and taking a generally optimist view of the position, announced that the proposals of the government were in all respects satisfactory to the legislative assembly cries of no no from the opposition benches adding that he had not the least doubt of the benefit which would accrue to the colony from the formation of a railway between leichardt's town and kuya and the opening up of easy communication with the premier's station sarcastically interrupted a member of the opposition whereupon there was a call to order upon which another member got upon his legs and there ensued a wordy and irregular combat in the course of which the member for east warrawarra denounced the member for North Carramburra as an obstructive monomaniac, who had so bullied and browbeaten the chairman of the commission, which had been called to inquire into the expediency of a railway, that the result of the commission had been most unsatisfactory. In fact, the honourable member for North Carramburra had shown a dishonourable desire to burke the whole proceedings of the commission. The honourable member for North Carramburra, hotly, "'Mr. Speaker, is the term burke parliamentary?' It is the name of a man, a murderer, rejoined an occupant of the cross benches. The member for North Carramburra. Mr. Speaker, I must state emphatically that what the honorable member for East Warrawarra alleges against me is a base fabrication. Further cries of order. The speaker expressed his opinion that it would be wise if honorable members would avoid personal allusions, and that it might also be well to allow the honorable member to proceed and to answer him afterwards. Here was raised the question of privilege, and there ensued a somewhat disorderly expression of opinion on the part of the browbeaten member, which was sufficiently uninteresting to the gallery, but which was followed by a vigorous onslaught on the part of the leader of the opposition, who moved as an amendment that the proposals of the government in connection with public works are eminently unsatisfactory to this House, a motion tantamount to withdrawal of confidence. The government tactics consisted in talking against time, the young recruits skirmishing lightly, the great guns reserving themselves for heavier work, in the hope that the laggard reinforcements might shortly appear, while the opposition was eager to hurry matters to a crisis and provoke a division that must result in ministerial defeat. In the gallery the wives of the anti-railwayist faction were decorously triumphant. The ladies on the government side looked crestfallen and mutually sympathetic 
yet each hugged the comforting reflection that her lord might assist in a coalition ministry. To Miss Longleat alone the defeat would be absolutely crushing. She was sitting apart at the lower end of the gallery, while two government clerks upon the other side of the partition were discussing the situation, unaware that their remarks reached her ears. Said one, "'It is likely that there will be an appeal to the country.' "'Very improbable,' returned the other. "'Longleat must put on considerable pressure to induce the governor to sanction it. "'Old Augmering's time is nearly up, and he is in mortal terror of doing anything unconstitutional.' "'Longleat has the pluck of the devil,' was the reply. "'Whatever comes of the debate, I'll back him to win in the long run. "'I can tell by the very expression of his face that he has a charge in reserve.' Depend upon it. Parliament will be dissolved. Have you seen the evening's gazette? This Gundaroo appointment will go against him. It looks like a bribe, yet the fellow's not worth buying. What can have induced him to give it to Valancy? The other shrugged his shoulders. There's a woman at the bottom of it. It is convenient sometimes to get a husband out of the way. Presently, Dyson Maddox, whose operations in the council had been short, came in to hear the debate and gained admittance to the ladies' gallery. He had watched Honoria's face with its expression of pained perplexity till he could not resist coming to her. It seemed to him that she had cast upon him a look of dumb appeal, and he obeyed the summons and took his seat beside her. "'I hear,' she said hoarsely, "'that the police magistracy of Gundaroo has been given to Mr. Valancy. Is it true?' "'It is in the evening's gazette,' replied Dyson. "'Why have you allowed this?' cried Honoria passionately. "'You are in the ministry. Surely you had a voice in the matter.' "'I am truly sorry,' replied Dyson. "'You must know that it was done in opposition to my wishes. "'Your father made it a personal question. "'But I ought not to discuss cabinet matters, even with you.' "'The appointment will tell fearfully against you,' exclaimed Honoria. "'Undoubtedly. "'Middleton will handle it presently. "'We are prepared for unpleasant language.' "'Oh, I am sick of this!' cried Honoria. "'They say that he has done it for her sake. "'It is hateful, degrading. "'I will go back to Coralbin,' she added suddenly. "'We shall be beaten. Why should I stay? "'Papa said the other day that I was a fair-weather child. "'I will justify his opinion. "'He has forsaken me. Let him stay with Mrs. Valancy. "'I will return to Janie. "'And now I am going home.' Dyson was touched with deep pity for her evident despondency. His very compassion forced him to place a restraint upon his speech, and made him appear cold. He escorted her to the bunyas, but refused her timidly given invitation to enter. She ate her dinner alone, then returned to the house, and sat listening to the speeches till midnight. The galleries were now fuller than ever. Opposite her the mob jostled each other, and the speaker's anteroom was crowded with gentlemen who watched her eagerly as she took her place behind the railings, not so high but that her face could be plainly seen. Beneath her, at the head of the ministerial bench, her father sat, his arms folded, his eyes downcast, his face sullen. Dyson was now sitting below the bar. The interest had become intense. There were no loungers strolling in from the smoking and refreshment rooms. The sergeant-at-arms looked more alert than usual. The speaker leaned forward over his desk and listened excitedly, yet the subject matter of the debate was of no state importance. The leader of the opposition was still speaking. The Gundaroo appointment was commented upon in terms far from complimentary to the Premier. An undercurrent of disgraceful insinuation ran through the discussion. Honoria's cheeks burned, and Mrs. Valancy was rigid, braving shame to avoid suspense. 
Longleat sat still with a look of dogged obstinacy upon his face, and did not raise his head till a direct charge was levelled against his honour, when he got up and fiercely denied the allegation against him. There followed a copious interchange of personalities, and Honoria blushed deeper. Why did her father descend to such scurrility? This petty warfare was degrading him. There was about the premier to-night none of that rugged eloquence and manly determination which had compelled her approval, even when she had winced at the misapplication of an aspirate. Mr. Middleton stood with outstretched finger pointed towards the object of his attack, pouring forth a torrent of invective, which was enhanced in disagreeable reference by the gestures with which it was accompanied. He could descend to any vituperation which did not exceed the limits of parliamentary language. There were cries of, "'Order! Order!' but still the rush of eloquence suffered no check. He knew his adversary's weak point, and would not let his advantage slip. What had been the honourable member's meaning when he had declared upon the boards of that house that he had never given away a billet from personal or interested motives? How could he justify it to his colleagues and his antagonists, this perversion of his oft-vaunted political morality, etc., etc.? At last Honoria felt that she could bear no more. She went home and dreamed miserably of defeat, but the debate continued all night, and grey morning crept in upon the combatants as they nodded upon their benches, or took it by turns to retire for rest and refreshment, always careful to preserve a quorum. Except from her point of observation in the ladies' gallery, Honoria saw nothing of her father for the next three days. He fought bravely when his turn came, shaking himself like a lion and speaking till exhaustion compelled him to cease even drawing one convert to the government side by the rough oratory that seldom entirely failed its mark. But the ministry was doomed. Upon the third night the debate was brought to a conclusion. The House divided sixteen to thirteen, and the opposition carried the amendment by a majority of three. It was confidently expected that the Gazette Extraordinary would announce the resignation of the ministry. There were public meetings of both factions. A violent demonstration took place in the Premier's favour, and a counter-procession of anti-railwayists solemnly burned his effigy before his own windows. There were conferences of the Cabinet, and rushings to and fro between the public offices and Government House. A few days later, the Gazette announced that His Excellency the Governor, with the advice of his Executive Council, would be pleased to prorogue the Parliament of Leichardt's Land, now assembled prior to its dissolution. A sudden blankness fell upon the capital. The late members rushed back to their constituencies to canvass for the new election, and Honoria, oppressed by a strange weariness and indifference, returned to Coralbin. End of chapter 14